Remember that Tom Cruise film, Minority Report? Came out in 2002, so I was pretty young, but I did see it. Seen it a couple times since. Uh, The premise in that movie, in case you didn't know or haven't seen it, uh, or maybe you forgot, is that police in the future have technology that makes it possible for them to catch criminals before the crime is ever committed. It's the ultimate example of preventive policing, finding ways to determine first who is a future criminal, what crime they will eventually commit, where it takes place, when it's supposed to happen, and how the suspect carries on with the crime. All thanks to technology. And it's all fictional, right? Well, maybe not. New report came out on Monday that is pulling back the curtain on the secretive nature of policing in 2020. And this isn't a study that was done in Europe or China or even the U.S. where we usually associate these kinds of stories with. It's happening right here at home. The ways Canadian police entities are using technology to predict who could be a potential criminal and where certain crimes are likely to take place. And it sounds great in theory, right? Again, it's preventive policing. And if it works, it works. But at what cost? And how does this impact our right to privacy and protecting your digital presence, your footprint, especially now since we're living in such a digital heavy age? The name of that report, by the way, is called To Surveil and Predict a Human Rights Analysis of Algorithmic Policing in Canada. And now speaking with Cynthia Koo of Technos Law, she is a lawyer, the co-author of this report, and a research fellow for the Citizen Lab, which is where you can find the article for yourself. Uh, Cynthia, thank you for your time here tonight on The Shift. Uh, Please tell us more about all this. What is algorithmic policing, and how does it lead into what you've identified as predictive policing? Sure. Well, thanks so much, first of all, for having me on. Very happy to hear that people are interested in our work. So to start off with, algorithmic policing can be hard to talk about because it encompasses such a wide range of different technologies that work in different ways. But at their core, it's the use of algorithms or automated computer instructions to mass process massive amounts of police data or other sources of data and to mass process and analyze them for the purposes of law enforcement and of criminal justice. How they can lead of this set of algorithmic policing technologies, a certain subset of them can be considered predictive policing technologies. And that's when the use of mass data processing is used to draw inferences or forecasts about crime that might happen in the future. And that can be location-focused predictive policing, where which attempts to forecast when and where crime might happen, so a particular neighborhood at a particular time, or person-focused predictive policing, which attempts to predict a given person's likelihood of engaging in criminal activity in the future. But what is important to remember is that in some cases, the field is starting to move away from the term predictive policing because predictive or prediction implies a certain level of certainty above what's actually available because you're really just trying to forecast. And in many cases, there might not actually have been any crime or the person had no intentions of being involved in crime at all. Okay, see, now that's interesting because when you hear fundamentally what they're trying to do, it sounds like I could get behind it in theory. But now when we're talking about the information and how they're gathering it, there is a right to privacy, a right to personal safety, security, all those things. So what kind of information are we talking about that they're gathering and and how are they going about and gathering it anyway? Right. That's a great question. And you're right. There are 
some good intentions behind the implementation of these technologies, and that's because people have bought into the hype, essentially, where in some cases the technologies do not live up to the hype, and because of the nature of this technology and the human rights engage, it's almost worse if they do live up to the hype and do what they say, just because of how far-reaching and pervasive and intrusive these technologies are. In terms of the information gathered, both with predictive policing and especially with algorithmic surveillance technologies, they can vacuum up unprecedented amounts of data, whether that's online data, so our social media activity, our online behaviors, our connections, our social networks, our friends and family, um, our, if we've had criminal records, if we've had interactions with the police, even if it was a police-initiated interaction, for example, as we see with carding and street checks, if a police officer stops me in the middle of the street and I haven't been doing anything wrong, they were just having a bad day and decided to take it out on me, my data still gets collected and still gets entered into a police database, so I'm now more likely to come up as a hit in the future if anyone does a check for um, a crime that didn't happen, for example, or runs a facial recognition algorithm on that database. And this is not just limited to online digital information, though. With surveillance technology such as facial recognition, for example, that kind of technology can be deployed um, potentially at public protests, for example. So if you attend a protest for a cause you care about, in the future, if we're not careful and we haven't enacted the proper human rights safeguards, then suddenly whenever you go out into public or whenever you go to a particular event, if that event is targeted for police surveillance, and we know that social movements such as indigenous rights activism, Black Lives Matter, have been targeted for social media and other types of monitoring, then suddenly you no longer have that freedom to attend events about causes you care about and you don't have the freedom to talk online about the things that you care about because what's happened is that what used to be public spaces, whether that's social media or whether that's a public event in physical space, you used to be able to enjoy a certain, you knew that someone might see you if they walked past, but that's completely different from police officers and law enforcement systematically collecting your personal data every time you say something online or every time you attend an event. Wow. Wow. Again, that's, yeah, that's shocking. Uh, certainly, as you mentioned it, the indigenous peoples movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, we have seen so much of that. It is ongoing. The fight continues. And we have not seen the end of protests, certainly. But when I'm hearing that, it seems like there's now an extra burden on the public to go ahead and just be more careful than they maybe have been in, in, in years past. And if you have a social media account, and I'm sure most of us do, be extra careful in how private your accounts are, or maybe thinking about uh, removing your digital footprint altogether. Exactly. And so this doesn't engage only our right to privacy, but this is why there are huge implications for freedom of expression and peaceful assembly and association as well. And there have been studies done. We know that if people suspect that the government is surveilling their online activity, so it doesn't even have to be happening in fact. If they think it's happening, they were more likely to engage in self-censorship. So they will not say the things that they want to or need to say. And you can imagine multiplying that effect across time, across people. What might that have on the political activities of particular social movements? So now I'm curious, in the event that a police force is using algorithmic or predictive policing and they gather this information, and let's say it does eventually lead to an arrest, how does the court view the information that they originally gathered as being applicable in court? Can it be used as legitimate evidence in the case against someone? And if so, you know, what's the precedent for something like that? 
Well, that's a really, really great question, and that is exactly where we hope our report comes in. Because Canada is still in fairly early stages of adopting algorithmic policing technologies, there are hardly any court cases where this kind of evidence has come up that we know of. Maybe there have been cases that haven't reached the courts or reached the stage of being reported, or we know that with other types of technologies, so for example, um, cell site simulators or MC catchers, there was an example where that case was withdrawn specifically so that law enforcement would not have to disclose that they were using this type of technology. So that was with another type of technology, but we could imagine it potentially happening here as well because there's only one case that we know of that we heard informally through another lawyer where they discovered this new technology was being used by the Ontario Provincial Police to scrape private chat rooms, including password-protected chat rooms. And that's not something that we knew about before. So one of the things that we hope our report does is one of two things. The first is that where the law is already enough to cover a particular situation where information is gathered through these technologies, the law may already be sufficient where you can apply it and interpret it in a way that says, yes, this use is illegal or this use should be subjected to limitations. But because no case has actually been brought to court and government hasn't done anything, there's no affirmative statement by a court saying this is a law or by the government saying this is a law. It's just up to us as individual lawyers and people to interpret and say, well, we suspect that if this ever did go to court, it's highly likely this would be found illegal. But the second situation is when even with the law in the books, even interpreting them in a way that accounts for the present-day technological capabilities of law enforcement, the law that we have now still is not enough. Because we have to remember that the laws we have today, both our constitutional safeguards and our human rights protections, they were all created before these technologies came into existence. So likely they were, these technologies were not contemplated when the safeguards that we have today were enacted. So they might not appropriately be calibrated for the protection that we need today. And so in those cases, the laws would have to be updated to take into account the unprecedented powers and reach of surveillance that law enforcement has to ensure that our human rights protections keep up. Yeah, certainly when the uh, the first lawmakers of this country were formulating laws to govern this country, uh, they weren't thinking about drones, they weren't thinking about surveillance, they weren't thinking about Instagram, Facebook, social media, all of that. So yeah, definitely seeing how technology is uh, quickly forcing all of us to adjust, including lawmakers right now. You mentioned the Ontario Police Force as being one of uh, the police forces in Canada using predictive or algorithmic uh, policing. Do we know of any other police entities across country across the country uh, that are also using these methods? Yes. Um, so you have to bear with me a bit because there's a wide variety where different forces across the country are using different types of technology. And moreover, they're also at different stages of development, use and adoption. So it's, it's really quite a, a, a motley crew of different technologies and forces. Um, I guess starting out west, in the we have in Vancouver, the Vancouver Police Department is engaged in location-focused predictive policing. And generally known under their geodash algorithmic policing system where they can forecast every two hours throughout the day the top six neighborhoods in Vancouver that are most likely to have a, a property crime happen based on their algorithms. Then in Saskatchewan, they have not deployed this yet because it's still under research and development, but the Saskatoon Police Service, the Ministry of uh, Ministry of Corrections and Policing in Saskatchewan and the University of Saskatch Saskatchewan 
have engaged in a joint venture, entirely public funded, to develop person-focused predictive policing algorithms. Right now, they're focused on missing persons, which is interesting because they're trying to predict um, future victims rather than future perpetrators. But once the missing persons project is done, they have said that they plan to move on to predicting other types of criminal activity, such as um, repeat and violent offenders, for example, um, or looking at the opioid crisis. Then that's it for um, predictive policing. But when we look at algorithmic surveillance technologies, those have been widely adopted and largely in secret across the country. Facial recognition technology is probably the poster child for that. We found out only a year, more than a year after the fact, that Toronto Police Service was using facial recognition, for example, and we only found that out because the Toronto Star broke that news. Similarly, with Clearview AI, the extremely controversial facial recognition technology that has changes algorithms, scraping the entire internet pretty much without consent, um, we only found out that many police services across Canada were using or had tested this technology, but again, we had no idea, and it took a news outlet in another country breaking that particular news for us to find out for ourselves. So it is a trend that is starting to pick up across the country, certainly alarming for those of us who didn't even know that algorithmic and predictive policing was even a thing. Uh, it's happening probably where you're living right now, if you're listening, and, and chances are, if it's not, it's it's going to become a thing. Cynthia, you recommended a couple of things earlier in our conversation. Would you also then recommend that police forces need to be absolutely transparent in terms of how they're gathering information, what kind of information they're gathering, and just whether or not they're they're dipping into this pattern of algorithmic or predictive policing and how it impacts everyday citizens. Absolutely. So in our full report, we recommend we provide 20 recommendations in total, but the, the top three, which kind of you have to address these top three before the rest are even relevant because they determine whether or not we should even use these technologies in the first place. The first one, as you mentioned, is transparency. We call for immediate full public disclosure of all the algorithmic policing technologies that police services, whether municipal, provincial, or federal, are using in Canada. And this is because we ran into so many access to information barriers in our research so that as extensive as our report is, we know it still does not cover all the information that is out there. For all we know, there's a police service out there that we either haven't heard of or we didn't get to talk to or they never responded to us. And they could be doing, um, they could be engaging in developing technologies that we just have no idea. And so we need them to engage that disclosure because we are not in a position, we don't have that information. They are the only ones who have that information. And we can't have accountability until we have transparency. As, the, as to the other two recommendations, priority recommendations, the first one is we call for an immediate moratorium on algorithmic policing technologies because of the vast range of significant human rights concerns that we found in our research and in our legal analysis. So we can't just let police officers, as you mentioned, um, do what they will without any check or any safeguards. We need this to stop so that we don't get into a situation of past dependency and inertia where we have to say, oh, well, you know, the tech is here, it's here to stay, so we just have to live with that now. We need to stop, take a breath as a country and 
set up what our third recommendation is, is a federal judicial inquiry that can actually do a full-fledged investigation, legal and policy and evidence-based analysis of each of these technologies on a tech-by-tech basis, because they're all different, and figure out what are the human rights implications, what are the implications for the right to equality, what are the implications of using historical police data, which we know is biased, and that's the only data that we have, what's the implications of using that for black communities, for example, or for indigenous communities. Again, figure all of that out and then decide, should we use these technologies at all? And if we do, subject to what limitations and safeguards to ensure that we still prioritize our constitutional and human rights. Thank you for your time, Cynthia. This is just, again, troubling, fascinating, and it's impacting all of us, whether or not uh, we realize it. So, uh, wow, what an eye-opener. Cynthia Koo of Technos Law, co-author of this report, and a lawyer specializing in technology and human rights, the researcher fellow for the Citizen Lab, which is where you can find this article. Thank you so much for your time and helping us uh, become a bit more aware as to how our lives are being monitored right now. Thank you very much.